All right, well, that was great. That was powerful. That's such a nice uh, thing to do every now and then to, uh, to pray openly as a body like that. And just uh, when, we, when we realize uh, how great God is and, and how he cares for each one of us and meets each one of us where we are, uh, we just realize that we have a great God. Last week we talked about uh, Hagar and how God found her in the desert. And we talked about a God who sees this, this little servant maid uh, in her problems and, and how he cared for her and sent her back and got her under Abraham's umbrella of blessing again uh, where she needed to be. And that's what God does for every one of us. There is no problem too big, no problem too small for God. And so it's such a blessing to hear everybody talk about their testimony of how great God is and, and the wonders that he's performed uh, in their lives. All right, well, I want to thank the worship band before I get into the sermon. And just uh, thank you for the great job that you guys do. I really appreciate that. And uh, if there are Sunday school kids, I think they've probably already been dismissed. Uh, but uh, okay, we're into now uh, Genesis uh, chapter 17. And so last week, uh, I started with a true confession about my lack of patience, especially on the road. Uh, sometimes I can exhibit lack of patience when I'm driving a car, and I, I need to repent and, and get better about that. Uh, this week, I'll tell you something else about myself uh, with uh, apologies uh, to those in the dental industry in our congregation. I really, really don't like to go to the dentist. Uh, <laughs> that could very well be. I'd like to go to a dentist who doesn't use sharp instruments, drills, and things that pull things out of my face. Uh, so I really don't like opening my mouth and having somebody, you know, scrape and pull and poke and say, does that hurt? Yeah, yeah, that does hurt. Can you, can you stop doing that, please? Uh, <laughs> so uh, that, that's just one of my things. I, I, I dread the going to the dentist. And, and so when the dental hygienist sees me on the calendar for that day, uh, she rolls her eyes and says, it's going to be a bad day for me today, I think, because uh, Bob Jenrick's coming today. So that, that, that's a problem for her. And it's a problem for me, too. I dread it for weeks to come. Um, but... You know, I would rather spend a month in the dentist's chair compared to what God asked Abraham to do in Genesis chapter 17, uh, because we're going to be talking a bit today about the uh, rite of circumcision and what that's all about, as an adult, no less. <clears throat> but uh, God gave this sign, uh, the sign of the covenant, because extreme discipleship requires extreme commitment. And this is a sign that God wanted to give to them uh, to, to show that they're part of the covenant community. And so uh, what a disciple is, is, is really it should be known by its fruits, right? A disciple should be known by his level of commitment to God. And so when we talk about a disciple, uh, we're talking about somebody who is following after God, uh, following after what God wants from us. And this week, what we're going to see is that God is going to tell uh, Abraham what a blameless, obedient, and committed disciple looks like. Having a little trouble with the uh, PowerPoint, guys. There it is? Okay. All right, so uh, what we're going to see today is, is that, that we have a, a, a model of what a committed disciple looks like. Uh, he's blameless, he's obedient, and he follows the will of God. And, and that's what a disciple looks like today. Nothing has changed in the 4,000 years since Abraham. That's what a committed disciple looks like. So uh, this week we're going to see that uh, a committed disciple is a few things. Battery issue, maybe? Oh, there it is. 
All right, so this week we're going to see that God identifies the extent of the covenant uh, with Abraham. We're going to see that God identifies the and distinguishes the nation. We're going to see that God identifies the heir. Uh, and then we're going to see that uh, Abraham identifies himself with the covenant. And then I'm going to have a couple of questions for us. Uh, so let's, uh, let's just pray about this passage before we get into it. Lord God, uh, I just ask that you would show us what you want us to see from this passage today. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to see what a committed disciple looks like, what a committed disciple Abraham was, and help us to follow in his model. Uh, Lord, teach us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So uh, let's just start off reading verses 1 and 2. Uh, and what we're going to be looking at first is that God identifies the extent of the covenant. So verses 1 and 2. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. All right, so the first thing I want you to see is that 13 years have passed now between the very first verse of chapter 17 and the last verse of chapter 16. Uh, 16, 16, uh, uh, Abram was 86 years old when uh, Hagar bore him Ishmael. And now verse 17, 1, Abram is 99 years old. So 13 years have passed, 13 years of silence from God, uh, no child. Hagar is still living in the house. And Ishmael is still living in the house, and now he is about to be a teenager. Uh, so he's got a long time without waiting. Uh, he hasn't heard from God in a very long time, but for whatever reason, God chose today to speak. And he says, I am God Almighty. And it's interesting that the worship band picked a couple of songs that had God Almighty in it, because that's what we're talking about today. That's El Shaddai in Hebrew. It's the first time in the Bible of many times that we see this term El Shaddai used of God. Uh, translated, it means God Almighty. And, and, and why? Why would God call himself God Almighty here at this particular time? Well, it's because God is going to do something that only God Almighty can do. He's about to open up Sarah's womb. She's been barren her entire life, and now she's going to have a baby. Uh, and only God can do that, so El Shaddai. God gave two commands here. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, these are not conditions that God placed on the Abrahamic covenant. God has already given the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15, and uh, he's bound himself to that covenant. But these commands are for the people, God's covenant community, what they should look like, how they should behave in light of the fact that they're God's chosen people. And so the Hebrew word for walk before me uh, is reminiscent of like a father-son relationship. So if, if you can remember when your kids were young and, you know, they're five years old and you're walking down the road and, and you're holding hands with your, with your child and they look up at you, you know, and they're looking for your approval and they're looking to see that they're doing it right and they want to know that you're pleased with them. Uh, that's the kind of relationship that we're talking about here. Uh, walk before me. Uh, so so he, wants, uh, he wants Abram to, to live a life uh, that his life would be an open book before God. Uh, no more would there be any uh, hiding or anything of, of what was in Abram's heart. His life needs to be an open book before God. And what God wants to see is somebody who is walking blamelessly. Now, this word blameless in the Hebrew is tamim. And it has a couple of different meanings. Tamim can mean to be uh, holy, to be perfect in a holy kind of way. But it can also mean to be perfect in a physical kind of way. So, 
Uh, if you were going to offer a lamb without blemish for sacrifice, that lamb would have to be tamim. So there's a couple of different ways that this word uh, tamim is used. Uh, holy and perfect. This is what God is saying to Abram. Walk before me, live holy, live perfect. Is that an impossible standard? Yeah, that, that's an impossible standard. Nobody can live up to that standard. Does that mean that we should not strive for that standard? No, that does not mean we should not strive for that standard. Of course, we should strive for that standard. You know, Romans 6 tells us that uh, we have the power not to sin. Also, it says that we inevitably will sin, but we do have the power not to sin. And so what happens, I think, is that because we've been told as Christians in our lives that we're going to sin, I think we can be a little too soft on our own sin, and I think we can be a little too tolerant of our own sin. And I think that, that we really ought to, to look at our sin a little more closely and realize that, that it's not something that should be tolerated. It's not something that we should say, well, everybody sins now and then, and just give ourselves a pass. That's not what we ought to do. We should be fighting daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, trying to kill the sin in our lives. We need to put our sin to death. That's part of what discipleship uh, is like. And so when we think about, about what it cost God to pay for our sin, that he had to send his perfect son, his tamim son, who lived a perfect and blameless life uh, before God, and then was sacrificed for our sin, for the sin that we committed, and died a gruesome death uh, and was raised from the dead so that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. When we think about that uh, and think about what it costs God to pay for our sin, we should look at our sin like that and, and not, not give ourselves a pass for uh, our sin. God does not require us to be perfect, to be tamim, to save us. But once we're saved, tamim should be our goal, right? We, we should be striving for that constantly. Uh, so what's God asking of Abraham here? He's not saying, Abraham, you need to be perfect from this day forward. But what he's asking of Abraham is to live a holy life, to live an obedient life, uh, to live a life of integrity, uh, live a life that you would not be ashamed to walk before God and have God examine your life and say, uh, I am pleased with you, Abraham. You're doing a, a good job here. Uh, so that's what, what he's asking of him. And then in verse 2, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. Now, God has already established this covenant between uh, he and Abraham, but many years have passed now, right? And so what God is saying here is that after 13 years of silence, now I'm going to give you what I promised to give you when I, when I uh, offered up the Abrahamic covenant to begin with. And, and so what do you have here? You have Abram who has not heard from God in 13 years, and, and how does he respond? He responds in worship and in awe, and it's just incredible to read his response. So let's take a look at verses 3 through 8. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. 
I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, so what we see here is that a lot of time has passed, 13 years have passed. Remember in chapter 15, uh, God said, uh, Abraham, I will be your reward and your shield. And Abraham says a question, right? How will I know God? But here, after 13 years of complete silence, you don't have a question. You have Abram falling right on his face and worshiping God. And so that's a big change, right? Doubt has changed to confidence over these 13 years, even though Abraham has not heard from God for all this time. Uh, you know, our walk can be like that too, right? When, when we're newer Christians, uh, oftentimes it feels like God is ever present in our lives, right? And he's answering our prayers one right after another. And it's just, it's the most glorious thing when you're a new Christian to see this amazing work that God is doing in your life. But but then as you become uh, maybe a little more mature as a Christian, uh, God pulls back a little bit, and, and maybe you feel like he's distant from you from time to time, uh, and you wonder where he is. Well, well, God hasn't gone anywhere, but what he's doing is he takes the spiritual training wheels off a little bit, as it were, so that you will learn to walk in faith, right? Just like when, when you're, you're teaching your kid how to ride a bike, you can't just uh, continue to hold the back seat of the bike, right? You gotta let the bike go and let the kid go on his own. And that's what he does with us. He lets us walk on our own, walk in faith so that we learn to trust him uh, more and more. And of course, Abram responds rightly by worshiping. He falls on his face and he's in awe of this incredible God. And so what does God do in verse five? He changes his name. This is the first time in the Bible that we have a biblical name change. And God changes names in the Bible when he's gonna change someone's circumstances. So uh, Abram is going to be changed to Abraham. The, the name Abram means exalted father. Now, that is more of a tribute to his father, Terah, than it is to Abram, right? It says, uh, this is a boy of noble birth, and so I'm going to name him exalted father. Uh, you know, I'm naming him more for my glory than for the boy's glory. But God is going to change that because now God says, look, I'm making a promise with you. I'm about to fulfill that promise. And Abraham means father of a multitude, which is exactly what Abraham is going to become. And so he changes his name because he's changing his circumstances. And then, uh, incredibly, God goes on to enlarge the promises. Has God been gracious to Abraham so far in what he's promised to give him in chapters 12 and chapters 15? Uh, you know, you're going to have descendants beyond number. All those who bless you, will, I will bless. All those who curse you, I will curse. And now God's going to go even beyond that, and he's going to, ex going to extend this promise past Abraham to his descendants and say things like verse 6, that kings will come from you. And verse 7, uh, that this will be an everlasting covenant uh, with your descendants. And he also promised to be the God of, of Abraham's descendants uh, for e eternity. And so this is an everlasting covenant, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you have God promising to be uh, Abram's God and all who come after Abram, he's going to be their God as well. And so what an incredible extension, enlargement of the promise. This was already too good to be true. And now God is giving him even more than he ever uh, could have asked for. Uh, so God has identified the scope of, of the covenant 
But now he's going to ask something very, very delicate of Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And he's going to ask them to identify themselves as part of God's covenant community with a ritual. Uh, and so this is how God's going, going to identify the covenant community. So let's read verses 9 through 14. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. Well, imagine you're Abram. You haven't heard from God in 13 years, and all of a sudden God, you know, parts the clouds, and he says to Abram, you know, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to enlarge this incredible covenant that I've already given you. It's going to get bigger and better than you ever knew. But here's what I need from you, Abraham. And he drops the circumcision bomb on Abraham. And Abraham goes, uh, gulp, right? And a cold blush, blood, a rush of blood to the head as he hears this word, circumcision. Now, I had always wondered, like, how would Abraham even know what circumcision is, right? But, but circumcision had actually been practiced uh, by other, other cultures for centuries. Uh, there's a relief on a wall in Egypt where it shows uh, people circumcising other people. Uh, I had it, and I had it in my PowerPoint, and I decided, nah, maybe better not. Uh, <laughs> but if you're interested, <laughs> I can send that to you. <laughs> there are also some statuettes from dating back to Syria, 2800 BC, about 800 years before Abraham's time, and it shows men standing there who have obviously been circumcised. So this, this circumcision ritual goes back a while. Sometimes it seems to be a rite of passage into adulthood. Sometimes it seems to be done for purity purposes. They're not really sure, but, but Abram wasn't the first to hear this thing. Uh, and so when he heard it, he knew what it was, and uh, I'm sure he was dreading it. And just so I can tell you that, that my research, I, I, I leave no stone not turned over. I actually went on YouTube and watched a circumcision be performed this week so I could see exactly what it was that we were talking about. And that's with modern equipment, modern instruments, and I can tell you that I still have not yet recovered. So <laughs> uh, Abraham, uh, Abraham knew what he was about to go through, and he was, he was not, not looking forward to it would be the nicest way I could say it. I suppose, uh, but uh, realize that this ritual is called the sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant itself. Uh, the covenant has already been given. God has bound himself to this covenant. This is a sign that people belong to the covenant community. So you identify yourself as part of the covenant community by partaking in this sign of the covenant. Uh, God could have chosen anything, right? And I'm sure Abram said, uh, God, circumcision sounds like a good idea, but how about a tattoo? Uh, how about an earring? Uh, you know, is there, is there any other way that we can identify ourselves here? Uh, but God chose circumcision because he's going to do something incredible 
through the male reproductive organ, right? He's going to, he's going to fulfill this covenant. He's going to give children to this couple that could not have children for their entire lives. And so uh, this is the reason why he chose this as the sign of the covenant. God's giving a perpetual reminder about him being God Almighty, about his greatness, about his power, about all that he is able to do. And so obviously it's a very intimate, it's a very delicate procedure. One slip and uh, you know, you're not having children anymore. So you gotta be really careful with that. And, and, and so it's an incredible act of faith to submit yourself to this act of, and to this ritual of circumcision. And so if you're a parent, uh, when you circumcise your son, you are saying that I indoctrinate my son out of obedience into this covenantal community. And as a wife, if you're about to get married to this uh, young uh, Israeli boy, uh, he has shown and his parents have shown that he's part of the covenant community. And so you know you're marrying into the covenant community as part of, of God's planned blessings. And if you're the individual, you know you have a daily reminder that you have been uh, indoctrinated, inaugurated into God's covenant community. And, and so you're part of God's covenant community. And, and they were to, pr to practice this throughout the generations. And so that's how you're identified as part of the covenant community. But, but God takes this, this ritual very seriously because there's a penalty for failure to comply. Verse 14 says that an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it's interesting that you can choose to either have a part of yourself cut off and enter the community, or you can choose to be cut off completely from the community and never enter the community yourself. And it's, it's your choice. Uh, the nation is not cut off. The individual is cut off. And that reminds me of the gospel, doesn't it? That, that we have a free invitation to accept the gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us, and we can choose to accept that gift or we can choose to deny that gift, and we are going to be held responsible for that gift. And in the same way, uh, these people who decide not to participate, partake in this rite of circumcision, uh, they are going to be cut off themselves. Uh, so um, again, it's, it's their choice. So God takes this covenant very seriously. Uh, you may remember in Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses has this incredible encounter with the burning bush. And right after that encounter, God in Exodus chapter 4 is ready to kill Moses because Moses has not circumcised their son. So his wife quickly grabs the flint knife and does the circumcision and Moses is saved. In Joshua chapter 5, the exiles have, have been wandering in the desert for 40 years and the practice of circumcision had been abandoned during that time. And they're about to enter into the promised land, but they're not going to enter into the promised land uncircumcised because they are not part of God's covenant community. And so Joshua goes around circumcising all the males before they are going to cross over the Jordan River and into the promised land and, and to take that promised land. So God takes this ritual, this covenant, very seriously. He wants you to be identified as part of the covenant community. And so he gives them this sign uh, that identifies these people and distinguishes them from the rest of the world. And that's a sign of grace. But as if that's not enough, now God is finally, finally going to identify this heir that he's been talking about with Abraham for now uh, uh, several years. And so God identifies the child of the promise. Let's look at verses 15 to 22. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, 
she shall, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So the second name change in the Bible, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And Sarah means princess, which seems very appropriate because now God is saying that, that uh, kings are going to come forth from you. Not only a son, but uh, kings and, uh, and nations as well are going to come from Sarah. So that's an incredible blessing for, for, for Sarah. And so a changed name means changed circumstances. God finally identified her as the mother through whom this blessing would come. It was not going to come through Hagar. It's going to come through Sarah. And so um, what happens here? Uh, Abraham has this, this reaction that's a little difficult to understand, right? He falls on his face, uh, and, and he seems to be in disbelief, disbelief, and yet he's laughing. So is it joy, or, or is it mocking? Well, I don't know. The commentators are really uh, kind of divided over this issue. There, there is certainly joy because he's, he's, he's got this pleasure that he's going to have this, this child. Uh, and, and God does not rebuke him for his laughter like he's going to rebuke Sarah for her laughter in the next chapter when we get there next week. But at the same time, uh, God uh, listens to Abraham and, and Abraham has a counterproposal for God, right? He says, well, uh, okay, but how about Ishmael? Uh, and God says, no, it's, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be, it's going to come through Sarah. It's going to come through your wife, uh, your flesh. And so the, the child is going to be called Isaac, which means he laughs, which of course is appropriate because Abraham laughed and, and next week Sarah is going to laugh at this, at this uh, promise that God is making with him. But God says, no, the, the, the child Ishmael, he should be blessed. And God says, okay, uh, I hear that. I hear you. I promise to bless those who bless you. He's living in your house. I will bless Ishmael. And I'm going to make him the father of 12 princes. And, and he's going to be the father of great nations too. But my covenant is going to be through Isaac. And so Isaac is going to be the child of the promise. So Finally now, God even says when he's going to be born. God, uh, God has, has given him this promise a long time ago, and now he finally says, at this time next year, you're going to have this son. So finally, the, the time has been identified, the mother has been identified, even the heir has been identified. Uh, you can imagine Abraham saying, you know, I, I'm not sure that we're fully functional anymore, God. I'm not so sure how this is going to go down. Uh, and God says, you know, you are more fully functional now than you have ever been because I'm about to open Sarah's womb, which has not been opened uh, in her lifetime. So have we seen 
God's grace in the life of Abraham in this chapter, uh, he enlarges the promises. Uh, he identifies and distinguishes the nations. Uh, he, he gives the time of, the, of the, the coming of the heir. He identifies the heir. He opens Sarah's womb. He does all of these great things. And, and this is what God co had come that day to tell Abraham. And when he's done speaking to him, uh, God goes up. And now is the time of decision for Abraham. What is he going to do? Uh, he, he could say, you know, I don't really want to be part of circumcision. I don't, don't really feel like that's my, what I want to do today. I, I had other plans for today. Uh, but instead, he lines up all the males, and, and he's going to submit to this rite of circumcision. So uh, let's read verses 23 to 27. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Now, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in Abraham's household when Abraham lined these guys up and says, all right, who's first? Uh, we're going to do circumcision today. I would not have liked to have been a man in that household, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that household just to see uh, what the men decided to do and how they reacted to this. Uh, God demanded an extreme sign from these guys because extreme discipleship requires extreme commitment. And what an act of faith of these guys, right? They haven't heard from, from God, and Abraham hasn't heard from God in 13 years. And now these guys are going to faithfully line up and be circumcised? That, that, that's incredible to me, that they would submit to something so delicate, uh, so painful, so intimate, and, and all line up and do this thing. So I just find that an incredible show of faith. And that's because God wants fully committed Christians. He does not want half-hearted uh, lukewarm Christians, uh, and that's our charge. Um, the church at Laodicea was lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3, and God vomited them out of his mouth, he said, because of your lukewarmness. I'd rather have you be cold than to be lukewarm. Uh, Jesus called his disciples to leave everything and to follow him. There was no room for, well, you know, let me go back and tend to my plow. He said, no, you turn and you follow me. That's what God wants. He wants wholehearted, full commitment uh, to what he is proposing. And so when we do this, we begin to become disciples. That, that's just the entry point. Uh, we're trying to become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to be, right? And, and we use this word disciple quite a bit. Uh, and so I just thought I'd take a second to say, what, what is it that we're talking about when we talk about becoming a disciple? Uh, here's what, what I think it is. Um, I use this thing, I, I, I call it knowing, growing, and going. And, and so Knowing God means you know God as your personal Savior. He's, you've accepted the free gift of salvation, and you enjoy a personal relationship with him. That's the entry point. Now you're saved. You ought to be growing after you're saved. You're seeking to know the word and grow in your faith with a goal toward living obediently to Jesus Christ. And then you're going. You're looking for opportunities in your area of influence to make converts, make them Christians, or to have newer believers grow in their faith and in their walk with Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does. 
And so uh, your women's ministry, uh, you guys are doing a great job. And this is what I'm hoping for for our men's ministry. I hope that we develop this men's ministry and that this is what it's going to begin to look like. But it doesn't just apply to a men's ministry. Our whole church should be looking like this. And so, and so this is the goal. This is what we're trying to become as we try to become disciples. It's an extreme calling, but it calls for an extreme commitment. Uh, and that's what it takes to be a disciple of Christ calls for an extreme uh, commitment. Abraham walked before God and he was blameless. And so uh, it's a call for us to do the same. He submitted to this act of circumcision uh, and, and we ought to be doing the same. So I have a couple questions for us as we think about what Abraham did and what his entire household did and, and about what this chapter is really about, walking before God and being blameless, being a disciple of, of God. Here's my first question. Same question God asked of Abraham. Are you able to withstand God's examination of your life? God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Well, that meant a holy life. Are we able to withstand that? It's a high standard. Last week, we saw that, that, uh, that Hagar called God El Roy, the God who sees. And we know that God sees everything. He sees our sin. He sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. We want to reduce the bad and the ugly, right? We just want to have the good, and we want God to see that as best as we can. He sees everything. He forgives us when we sin, of course, but let's not forget what it cost him to pay for our sin, and let's not take our sins so lightly. Uh, I saw a tweet this week. Uh, that's, that's Twitter, for, for those of you who, who don't Twitter and tweet. Uh, I do it because my kids are on Twitter, and I need to know what they're up to, so uh, we're, we're on Twitter. Uh, so, except that they keep secret accounts that we don't know about, so <laughs> mission foiled. Uh, but anyway, I saw this tweet that was related to the eclipse, and this is what it said. It said, the sun will burn your eyes out from 92 million miles, and do you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its creator? I mean, that's powerful stuff, right? Um, this is the God that we serve. We can't even look at the sun for one second, or our eyes are going to be burned out, and we're going to casually walk into uh, the presence of its creator. I thought that was powerful. I, I thought that, uh, that made me think a lot about my sin and how God sees it and, and how he hates it. So let's not tolerate our sin. Let's kill our sin. Let's live a life that can withstand God's examination. And the second question I have is, are you willing to make the extreme commitment required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? There are lots of people in the world who call themselves Christians, right? If you were to take a, a survey, you would see uh, millions of people, billions of people call themselves Christians, but is there any change in their lives that's, that's discernible, that's visible, that you can see, that you can measure? Is there any fruit in their life? A committed Christian is required to, to obey uh, things that he doesn't want to obey, uh, like being circumcised as an adult. I don't even want to think about what that would be, but you know, circumcision, as an adult, as painful as that is, as bad as that is, in a week, two weeks, it's over, right? And, and you don't have the pain anymore, you don't have the soreness anymore, it's done. But a, a, a walk with God like this, to be an extremely committed disciple of Jesus Christ, requires daily submission to all that God commands. It's, it's a call to obedience. Uh, it's a call to uh, obey, to be humble, to admit that we need him, to rely on him and not rely on ourselves, to forgive those who have hurt us, to reconcile with others even though we just don't want to reconcile with that person, uh, to bear witness for him even in hostile uh, territories and environments, uh, to put away your sin and to follow at all costs. 
This is what it means to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Are we willing to make that commitment? We should be able to be identified as Christians just as easily as we should be able to identify a male who has been circumcised. It should be out there for people to see. When they see us, they should be able to see uh, that person is a Christian, and I know because of how they act and how they behave. So as we go out from here today, let's glorify God and let's figure out how we're going to look different from the rest of the world so that God will say, uh, you have walked blameless before me and I approve of you. All right, let's pray. Lord God, uh, we do thank you for this chapter. Uh, Lord, you show us in these, in these verses that extreme discipleship calls for extreme commitment. And, and Lord, it's important for you that we would be identified as part of your community. And, and however that looked for Abraham and however that looks for us, we need to uh, think about how those things uh, need to be done in our lives. And, and Lord, I pray that that we would look at our lives, that we would examine our lives as you do and look for things that need to be put to death and look for ways to follow you, Lord, and to be more committed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, so that when we come before you, uh, when our time is done, you would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, we thank you for your son who died on the cross for our sins so that if we believe, we will have eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.